Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine, Be in the Know and Stay Up to Date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific Memorial Day show lined up for you, including guest Mark Schulman. He is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global affairs. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. He asked the question, "America, or it makes the statement, America can't do far better than Biden. That's for sure. We'll put that in historical context. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington bureau chief, will be joining us as well. It is May the 30th and on this day in 1868 by a proclamation of General John A. Logan of the Grand Army of the Republic. The first major Memorial Day observance was held to honor those who died in defense of their country during the late rebellion. Known to some as Decoration Day, mourners honored the Civil War dead by decorating their graves with flowers. On the first Decoration Day, James General James Garfield made a speech in Arlington National Cemetery, after which 5,000 participants helped to decorate the graves of more than 20,000 Civil War soldiers buried in the cemetery. In 1868, celebration was inspired by local observances that had been taking place in various locations in three years since the end of the Civil War. In fact, several cities claimed to be the birthplace of Memorial Day, including Columbus, Mississippi, Macon, Georgia, Richmond, Virginia, Bullsburg, Pennsylvania, and Carbondale, Illinois. In 1966, the federal government, under the direction of President Lyndon B. Johnson, declared Waterloo, New York, the official birthplace of Memorial Day. They chose Waterloo, which had first celebrated the day on May 5, 1866, because the town had made Memorial Day an annual community-wide event during which businesses closed and residents decorated the graves of soldiers with flowers and flags. By the late 1900, many communities across the country had begun to celebrate Memorial Day, and after World War I, observers began to honor the dead of all America's wars. In 1971, Congress declared Memorial Day a national holiday to be celebrated the last Monday in May. Uh, today, Memorial Day is celebrated at Arlington National Cemetery with a ceremony in which a small American flag is placed on each grave. In the customary uh, form of the uh, President of the United States or the Vice President to give a speech honoring the contributions of the dead and to lay a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. More than 5,000 people attend the ceremony annually. So it is Memorial Day, a day of uh, real reflection and uh, expression of gratitude. It's a federal holiday, as we mentioned, in the United States for mourning the U.S. military personnel who have died while serving in the United States Armed Forces. To quote Abraham Lincoln's great Gettysburg Address, which is, as you'll hear, really uh, reflects on the times, but also is uh, almost immemorial, we've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men... Living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget 
what they did here. It is further to be dedicated to the unfinished work for which they fought, here to have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion, that we have here highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall be a new birth of freedom, and the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Again, a very short speech that he gave in Gettysburg, and uh, after a, a long oration, his speech was so short, but uh, he said that it would probably be little, not long remembered. It certainly was and certainly is. And I think those words speak to what's happening uh, today. And by the way, there's a uh, memorial service <clears throat> Excuse me, at uh, uh, Hodges Funeral Home. Uh, it's uh, going to be uh, Hodges Funeral Home. This is 525 111th Avenue North, uh, just west of St. John the Evangelist Catholic Church. And uh, there's going to be CVC uh, President William C. Carl, U.S. Uh, uh, Marine Corps, a retired general, will preside, presenting 20 veteran groups throughout, uh, presenting uh, veteran groups throughout Collier County. And uh, the keynote address will be Brigadier General Edward Brandt, retired, remembering chaplains and their caring. Directly following the ceremony, they'll be giving, uh, join us, they're asking, please join us for a 10th Annual Earl Hodges Memorial Day Picnic, Cook Brothers Barbecue, sponsored by Hodges Funeral Home. And if you have any questions, you can call. But this is the big uh, celebration or uh, remembrance of Memorial Day, and it's here in Collier County, and you can call 597-3101. By the way, this is at, I don't think I mentioned, it's 10 a.m. ceremony, 9.30 musical prelude. So that's happening at Hodges Funeral Home. I don't see any charges at all, so... Uh, 597-3101 is the uh, phone number. Earlier this month, both Florida and Texas passed legislation to allow for a greater number of teachers to be armed. Florida and Texas both experienced school shootings last year. Of course, at Marjorie Stone um, and Douglas High School in Florida and Santa Fe High School in Texas, leading to debates in both states over whether or not uh, arming teachers could prevent such tragedies. And while there's previously been uh, debate over armed school security, arming teachers aims to solve many imperfections with armed security more broadly. As we learned from the Stoneman-Douglas shooting, it's possible that security will be negligent in the duties of times of crisis, and we saw that also in uh, Uvalde. And at Santa Fe, there were armed security, so the shooter simply began his massacre at a part of the school where that the easily identifiable security guards were not present. The debate over arming teachers is different because no student uh, who would know which teachers are armed and thus no potential shooter would know which areas of the school to avoid or to know which armed officers to target first. And to clear up some of the semantics, the armed teachers debate isn't literally about arming teachers and arming teachers policy would only affect teachers who have experience with firearms and a concealed carry permit that allows them to conceal carry their weapons practically everywhere except their place of employment where they uh, employment where they spend the majority of their waking hours while are characterized as insane idea for the left this was already in 20 states it's already in 20 states that allow teachers and other school staff to conceal carry on school grounds in Ohio alone there are over 200 schools 
At school districts that allow teachers to carry guns, where an estimated 10 to 12 percent carry, in Texas, 30 percent of school districts, uh, 315 already allow for armed teachers before this recent legislation. If army teachers was a crazy idea, certainly there would be mountains of evidence if it was going awry, wouldn't there? And the Crime Prevention Research Center uh, study shows school districts that allow for armed teachers and staff from 2000 to 2018, and the consequences have yet to be seen. The evidence shows the objections to army teachers are relatively straightforward, with the alleged potential consequences, including teachers becoming more aggressive with students, students attempting to steal the teacher's gun, or teachers ex- a- uh, accidentally shooting innocent bystanders in the event they do not do need to discharge their weapon. <clears throat> Another talking point we commonly hear is that we don't pay teachers enough to be armed. Do these people really uh, think all concealed carry permits should be financially cons- compensated? Probably not. I think the teachers are concerned about their own life and the life of their students. Luckily, these objections are bunk, as a review of the evidence from the CPRC has found among all schools from 2000 to 2018, there were 306 gunshots on school property with 188 involving death or injury and 48 being suicides. Firearm-related deaths are rising at schools, but of course that needs to be put in the national context that one in 800 times, uh, one is 800 times more likely to be killed by a gunshot wound outside of the school than inside one. Regardless, there's uh, one category of schools that has zero deaths from firearms when schools are in session, and it's those schools who allow teachers to carry. How about that? But uh, <clears throat> one of the unintended consequences, such as a teacher accidentally discharging a weapon or having been one stolen, well, according to the CPRC, one accidental discharge by a permit holder of a K-12 uh, property occurred. It occurred in Utah in November 2014 and resulted in a very minor injury. A teacher discharged her gun in a faculty bathroom after school hours, and she was slightly injured when fragments from the toilet struck her. A few other incidents have occurred during firearm training classes held outside of school hours. There's never been a case of a student getting a hold of a teacher's or a school staffer's gun. Never. Nor has there been any increase in the cost of insurance for schools who allow to arm teachers, uh, which uh, every town for gun safety has cited an argument against the policy. One legitimate counterargument to the CRPC study could be that it suffers from a relatively small sample in the context of all public schools, and because school shootings are extremely rare events, it could simply be a chance that schools that allowed armed teachers haven't seen any shootings. After all, the overwhelming majority of uh, America's nearly 100,000 public schools have never seen a school shooting, and there's entire states that haven't had one in their history. That may be true, but given that we know from thousands of districts that are already doing uh, do allow armed teachers they can do so without any issue, even if they aren't acting, acting as a deterrent. There's no reason to disarm them. As John, since 1950, all but seven mass public shootings in America have occurred in so-called gun-free zones. In that light, it probably is no coincidence that we haven't seen any mass shootings in, gu- in schools that are not gun-free zones. That makes all the sense in the world. Makes, I don't understand the argument that... Uh, people with guns are hurting people, so we should take guns away from the innocent. That makes no sense to me. In fact, I think it would make sense uh, to uh, require 
gun usage and uh, training on and shooting for all teachers. Now, they don't have to carry one, but at least they would be trained. And uh, somebody who's so deranged doesn't want to come in and kill kids, they'd be on notice that uh, this is a people would uh, shoot to kill if they found that anybody was coming into the school to arm people and arm the kids so that uh, instead of being a gun-free zone, people who would perpetrate these types of crimes would understand they could be in big trouble if they decided to uh, to attack uh, a school. That would be a better solution than, for example, uh, getting rid of guns and, and whatever the left is trying to do at this point. <clears throat> Why Americans need to assess in midterms just uh, need to assess where they are a few years ago, former President Donald Trump told in his Save America rally at Ford Wyoming Center in Casper, Wyoming on Saturday night. The contrast between the Trump administration's success and Joe Biden's breathtaking failure could not be more stark, Trump told the rally, which aired on Newsmax. Compare how great America was just two years ago and then think about, about today, he said. Two years ago, look where we were doing things that nobody thought possible. And then three years ago, it was even beyond. And then we got hit with this crap that came out of China, the China virus. Trump was on fire. I don't know if you saw the uh, rally. We, Linda and I did watch the rally, and it was fantastic. Thousands and thousands of people were there. Uh, he, of course, uh, Trump uh, returned to rally tour uh, after a few weeks hiatus, stumping from Wy for Wyoming House GOP primary candidate Harriet Hegman. He celebrated the campaign to oust a rhino, uh, Rep. Cheney, and the, the new nickname for his uh, loyal supporters, Ultra MAGA. Now, this is something that uh, Joe Biden came up with. Ultra MAGA is better, so Trump is starting to use it for his loyal supporters. Amazing. Just Amazing. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman. He is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. 
The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now, we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is a founder and publisher of a multimedia website, great for kids of all ages. It's called historycentral.com. I hope you'll check it out. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. Uh, today is Memorial Day. It's a, a solemn day. It's a day to uh, remembering those who made the last full measure of devotion. I, I want to get your thoughts to start the score before we started out on uh, talk about some of the other things that are happening around the world. Well, today we really should put aside, not for shopping, not for barbecues, but really to, to think back at those people who really have made the ultimate sacrifice. In American history, uh, 1,354,664 wow. men and women um, died during the wars, half of them in combat and half of them not directly in combat. Most of the non-direct were civil war, of course, where so many people died from disease. But in every war, a lot of people die who were not necessarily directly in combat. Um, 666,441 men and women gave their lives <clears throat> in actual combat uh, to keep America free. And that's the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, many of those graves are sitting in in, in France, in Normandy, and um, gave their lives twice, once in World War One and once in World War Two, uh, to save the world and save Europe. And um, we need to honor those people in every which way possible. Absolutely. Um, and think about it. And like I said, it, it's as soon as it's, it's it's sad in a way that it's become a big shopping day or the beginning of summer and the you know, beaches are open and I mean I know it's all good and well but yep. it seems to me, it, it seems to me there needs to be a greater a greater amount of solitude or and solemnity around, around it. Um, stories of those who gave their lives. The papers should be full of that and you know what the, the people who did and what they left behind and everything else that's involved in that. And I think. It's important to to think about that and and remember. Remember well, is the key. And remember them, and also be grateful for the freedom that they've died uh, for for each of us to experience. And uh, absolutely, we're standing they on their gave shoulders. the ultimate sacrifice. Absolutely, Mark. and uh, we need to understand that that uh, freedom is not free, as they say. Yeah, appreciate those words, Mark. Thank you so much. So let's talk about what's happening around the globe, and let's start off with Turkey. So Turkey has always been this 
problematic ally of the United States and of NATO. Probably today it wouldn't even make it into NATO because it's really not a democracy, and NATO members have to be democracies, but we'll leave that part aside. They're creating difficulties with the allowing Finland and Norway to join NATO, um, and obviously that's very much in NATO's interest for those two countries to join. Um, it's not clear whether it's just Erdogan being himself making difficulties and he's just trying to get paid off in some form or another, or he's doing Putin's bidding. It's it's hard to know sometimes with him, um, but it's been problematic. And he's also, you know, doing his own policy in Syria, which that's okay. It's in his sphere of influence, and I don't think the United States should determine what he should do, should or should not be doing in Syria, to be quite honest with you. Um, but, um, you know, he's always been a bit of a problem, is the best way to put it. Yeah, but, but it, it, in fact, if he's, uh, don't we stand responsible to defend Turkey if, in fact, Syria uh, is provoked and, and fights back? In other words, yeah, yeah, but Syria can't do anything. Syria has no Syria has no army at this point. Yeah. Understand something that Turkey has the second largest army in NATO. Ah. Um, Syria is, is is not a significant play. We're talking more about the Kurds inside Syria and the, the ongoing fight for the Kurds, the Kurds who want independence, also in parts of Turkey. And so Turkey's had this ongoing fight with Kurds in Syria, Kurds in Iraq. Um, very problematic on, on that level. But no, Turkey does not need the United States to defend it, so it from the Syrians. The Syrians have no... That's this way. The Syrian regime would not exist if it wasn't for Putin. So a asking Putin. a different question then, uh, can they uh, blackball, if you will, uh, the F Finland and Sweden from being in the... Theoretically, they can, because it requires unanimity in order to, to have another state join. The general belief is that he'll cause problems, but it's manageable. Hmm. In other words, it'll cost something, some agreement, something to do. I mean, he wouldn't allow for the longest time a, da a Danish uh, army general become the commander of NATO because da Denmark was too liberal in allowing cartoons that embarrassed the Prophet Muhammad. Hmm. So, so there'd be, be some quid uh, pro quo then. But there was a quid pro quo. They got a Turkish officer in a high-ranking position, and that was the, the deal. He's, you know, he's a deal maker ultimately. Yeah, interesting. Let's so. move. Let's move to uh, Ukraine and what's happening right now in the extended war. So in Ukraine, a couple of things are happening at the moment. Um, the Russians are concentrating in one area only, and that's in the Dom Donbass region. And so they've moved all their forces there. And they are making slow advances, very, very slow, and it's costing them a tremendous amount of men, and it seems like a lot of their men are uh, refusing to fight. Uh, the Ukrainians, on the other hand, are counterattacking in Kherson, which is a separate area in the south, um, because the Russians have moved almost all their troops to, to Donbass. So um, it's a fluid situation. Um, the Russians are doing a little better than they were doing before on one hand, on the other hand, they're running out of materials and troops and everything across the board. Um, so uh, the general expectations is that the Ukrainians uh, will be able to hold back the Russians in Donbass with giving up a little bit of land strategically and be able to to launch a significant counteroffensive. Do the Russians have Do the Russians have a supply line of uh, uh, back uh, new weapons and 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 uh... no. They're bringing out their old weapons. They're bringing out 50-, 60-year-old tanks because they can't produce new weapons because, A, they never were able to produce them quick enough to begin with. And second of all, guess what? They need components from the West in order to do it. Yeah. 
So the, the, the sanctions, it's an interesting thing. The sanctions are working very well in a way that we had not anticipated, in the sense that Russia is getting income because it's still selling the oil and uh, having a hard time getting agreement. Hungary and Orban is being particularly problematic in agreeing to a cutoff of, of purchasing all of um, Russian oil. But what's working very, very well is no one's selling to the Russians. Mm-hmm. And so it's it found that impossible to buy anything, and that includes ships for their tanks and everything else like that. So, um, so does does waiting out slowly grinding to a halt? Yeah, I mean, does that makes a case, doesn't it? If you're just waiting it out and just having them run out of supplies? Well, on one level, yes, but obviously they're they're still fighting, and we have to keep on supplying the Ukrainians with with weapons. Mm-hmm. Well, you, know, you can't just ignore that fact. They create, you know, the modern warfare unfortunately consumes a tremendous amount of of equipment and more important ammunition. And um, you know, the Ukrainian economy has been totally devastated, and so they also need the economic support in order to keep the country afloat. Right. So we need to keep on doing that in order to keep um, Ukraine successfully fighting the war, and eventually the Russians will probably collapse, and hopefully more likely Putin will be removed from office, which will be the best best outcome of it all, obviously. And replaced by um, whom? No one knows. No one knows, but look, this war seems to be more than anything else a personal obsession of his. Hmm. And so it's unlikely that a new leader would continue it. Obviously, if he's removed, he'll be removed because of the war and the failure of the war. And hopefully whoever replaces him will quickly agree to some sort of peace terms that everyone can live with. And And how would that happen? How would he be removed? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, in, we don't know enough about what goes on in, in the Kremlin, but most likely leaders like that are removed by killing them, frankly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what generally happens. But we don't really know. It's an un, it's a big unknown. Um, you know, can are there enough important political figures that can get together one day and say, you're gone? It's not... He's managed to... to, to um, place so much of the power within him directly to himself as opposed to the Politburo that which existed in the Soviet times and with the Politburo who get together and basically oust the chairman. So is it, are we seeing a, a little bit of rumblings from uh, some of the generals that are not satisfied with, with how things are going? I'm just wondering if uh, perhaps there might be a stirring of uh, revolt. We've, we've heard it at different times, but we don't really know. Um, it seems more than anything else the Russians have lost a tremendous... They've lost a lot of generals in Ukraine, mm-hmm. but they're really losing their junior officers. Um, and they're l- losing them in, at a very high rate. Mm. And so it's going to be very hard to reconstitute their army without junior officers. Um, the so, Russians don't have, like the United States does, which is like senior NGOs, uh, um, senior non-coms, and NCOs, excuse me, who are non-commissioned officers who are the you know, staff sergeants, etc., who stay for many years, and they're sort of like the backbone. So I see, I just reminded of a statement that uh, I heard somebody say that people uh, who are homeless, they don't run out of money, they run out of friends. seems to me that Russia right now seems to have run out of friends. That's clearly the case. Yeah. They still have a little bit of friendship with China, but not. China is afraid to get too close to the Russians. And they're friends with a little bit with Hungary. Orban has always been a problem, and it remains a bit of a problem. And um, Serbia, that's their friends. Hmm. Let's let's move so. to Iran and what's happening in uh, Iran. So two parts to, to, to the Iran situation. One, um, the United States has made a clear decision in the Biden administration not to remove the IRG from uh, the terror list. 
which was one of the, the demands that the Iranians had. So that brings to question whether there's any chance at all for a new agreement to, to take place. Um, on the other hand, um, there were two assassinations in Iran, or one assassination of a high-ranking member of the IRG who was responsible for attacking Israel and Jewish sources outside the country, and another in one of their secret um, military nuclear facilities, uh, Rumazar was attacked by drones uh, from an unknown country. Hmm. Um, people are suspecting Luxembourg, but probably wasn't Luxembourg. Uh, by, by the way, just to remind our listeners that you're in Tel Aviv, so we're speaking to you from Tel Aviv. Could it have been uh, Israel? I don't know. Who has the most interest? <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. Well, thank you for that's, that. That's the only way you can go by it. There's no, you know, there's no proof of who it could be, but you have to ask who, who has the most interest and who has the capabilities. Yeah, well, well, you, I think, did you say Luxembourg? I just... Uh... I was joking. That was oh. what one, <laughs> okay. one, of, one of these really generals was saying. And it's unlikely it was Luxembourg, right? I mean, yeah. you know, that's... The, the, the most unlikely country to have done it, so that's why I use the word Luxembourg. Okay, gotcha. All right, so let's let's move to Taiwan then. Okay, so it's now quite clear that um, that President Biden's statement was not a slip of tongue. It was not a sign that he didn't know what he was talking about. He made a very clear statement at this point, repeated a number of times. The United States has changed its policy of of ambiguity, ambiguity when it comes to defending Taiwan if it's attacked by China. Um, and I think, given the state of the world, I think it was a good decision on his part to do that. So there shouldn't be any questions. The Chinese should not think that they can attack Taiwan and not uh, see an American response and American defense of Taiwan. On the other hand, hasn't there been a lot of news that that statement has been walked back by the State Department and others? Who, uh, it... No, all there was news was it was the statement that the United States hasn't changed its to you know its policy of you know it hasn't changed its policy regarding Taiwan and the fact that it's to you know part of China at some point, et cetera, et cetera. But no, there's been no there's been no direct walk back of what he stated at all. But for, not he the, repeated it. Uh, the one China and policy, it, it, which we agreed to, I guess we agreed to it when they be in 1971, if I'm not mistaken. Right, with, with President Nixon. So we agree to the concept of one China, that someday maybe Taiwan will become part, back part of China if the Taiwanese ever agree to it, and if China ever changes and becomes a democracy. Uh-huh. But China went the other way, and um, President Biden did not, you know, he was very clear. He has made a statement uh, and has stood by a statement and has repeated his statement a number of times. So I think we can say that it's a change in American policy. I think it's the right change at this point. Interesting. Um, look, I mean, it, it, he's done a reasonably good job of orchestrating American foreign policy in these last three or four months of real-world difficulties, let's put it that way. Well, I have to think uh, that China's thinking twice about invading uh, Taiwan right now when they see what's happening in Ukraine. So, uh, it... Oh, absolutely. There's, there's no question. The Chinese at this point um, realize that, A, it's not going to be a cakewalk. I mean, think about it from another perspective. Russia shared a border with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. All it had to do was you know, cross whatever might have been a, a fence, basically. Right. China has to make an amphibious landing across a defended defended straits with no experience you know the united states developed an experience in amphibious landings uh, believe it or not the u.s marine corps in the 1920s uh-huh. uh, identified the need for developing expertise in 
in amphibious landings and, and worked at it and developed that prior to World War II. And then long before the U.S. went to Normandy, it had a, many smaller, you know, starting with Guadalcanal, had a series of, uh, of smaller landings where it, where it developed a great deal of expertise. These are not things you learn in a day, let's put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move to China. I mean, there's still with the shutdown, it's just amazing, the zero zero tolerance for COVID uh, at the expense of, a tremendous expense of their economy, I would think. Absolutely. Their economy is really, really reeling from the the situation. Um, They've started to ease out in Shanghai. I mean, the interesting thing is it seems to have worked medically cost them a fortune in terms of economics, and it's also forced, it's cost them a fortune in terms of public support. Um, but again, they did, made, made two huge mistakes. Um, number one, they uh, they failed to vaccinate their elderly, and, whoever, and the ones they did vaccinate, they also failed to buy the Western um, vaccines, and the Chinese vaccines have been proven to be relatively ineffective, and B, because they were ineffective, the elderly didn't want to be vaccinated. So that's for a dangerous situation. Now, look, we have we know what's going on in North Korea. We don't really know what exactly is going, but they're reporting 150,000 cases a day, not of people who are testing positive for COVID. It's not clear that they're, te- they're testing them. It's people who are, who are you know, showing symptoms and, and sick with fevers and everything else, you know, all the signs of COVID. Uh, they're, 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 and they are counting about 150,000 new cases a day. Hmm. And it's not at all clear deaths. We have no idea. They're not announcing anything relating to deaths, but they have neither the medical facilities, nor have they been vaccinated, nor do they have the, the pill that now exists that, that, can, uh, that can treat COVID once you actually have COVID. None of those things exist in North Korea. And so, and they did not shut down either. So they're now going, it's going through their population at, at a rapid rate. And we don't know what the end result is going to be. That is so interesting. Yeah, it's China, I mean, uh, is it possible? I mean, it seems to me if you're locking up 25 million people uh, or f- 15 million people, whatever it might be, in a lockdown, seems to me there's got to be some sense of revolt or uh, dissatisfaction with it by those people. Look, there clearly is, and there's also clearly the fact that the Chinese economy is slowing down and not growing sort of violates the basic deal between the Chinese government and and the people, which basically said the following. We'll give you um, growth, we'll give you money, we'll let you travel, we'll let you buy things, we'll let you become rich, so to speak. Some of you, a lot of you, most of you will come out of poverty. In return, don't get yourself involved in politics. Leave that all to us. Mm-hmm. And that's worked for 25 years. I mean, more people have come out of poverty in China than anywhere else in, in the history of the world. Yeah. And we need to keep that in mind. I mean, that part has really worked, but now things are slowing down, and we'll see how that, that arrangement continues. Let's put it that way. All right. Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I hope you check it out. It's great for kids of all ages, including you and I, uh, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Have a great week. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Larry Reed. Larry is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples' only vitality and longevity practice where acupuncture, medical massage, energy healing, and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a -a one-of-a-kind restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignedToHeal.com. That's IamDesignedToHeal.com or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now and find out more by visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, and our focus is on young people of high school and college age. We inspire and educate them on ideas of individual liberty, free markets, small government, and personal character. And we do that through our uh, website, which is fee.org. We have daily fresh content uh, uh, every day of the week. And also uh, uh, videos that are free and books to offer, uh, conferences around the country and sometimes abroad. And um, we're a very active organization trying to bring people back to understanding what America uh, was founded upon. Yeah, and uh, today is the day that we reflect on uh, the, those that made the last full measure of devotion by giving their lives for us in combat to protect our freedoms, and certainly we sh- should be grateful for that. You know, uh, Larry, you, you wrote a piece about, it's called America Can Do Far Better Than Biden, and I think we all know what you mean, but the, it's a great piece. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay, thank you, Bob. Well, I have to admit that uh, when Joe Biden came into office, 
my expectations were about as low as they get, uh, but he's exceeded those, yeah. <laughs> but in the wrong direction. Um, uh, I can't think of any policy question that he's gotten right, uh, and I can think of many critically important ones from uh, the, the border to uh, COVID, you name it, that he has made some major blunders about. Um, in this essay that you referred to, Bob, I asked the question, how many Joe Bidens does it take to uh, screw in a light bulb? And the answer is two. One, to assure the public that everything possible is being done, and the other to screw the bulb into the water faucet. <laughs> I, I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's kind true. of accurately describes uh, 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 his administration so far. Nothing of consequence that he's done right, a lot of harm to the public and to the country uh, de- almost daily. You know, and uh, it's it's amazing. Thank goodness for our, our founding fathers who saw the importance of having uh, a balance of power because uh, quite na- r- frankly, I mean, if this guy had unlimited power, you can just imagine how, what would happen to the country right now. And I guess, you know, he's not the only one in our history who's uh, been so weak and uh, f- feckless. Uh, that's right. We've had some other bad presidents. So Woodrow Wilson... I think, was the worst of all of our presidents. Uh, He was Hmm. um, a a detestable person. He was arrogant and condescending. He was an unrepentant racist, uh, a supreme egotist, uh, just just a bad news, um, big government regulator um, who set a lot of bad precedents. But we've had some good ones as well. And and most of the column that you're referring to, which was published at lamerican.com is devoted to some of the good ones that we had. Uh, George Washington, of course, being our first, was the right man at the right time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's clear that he wasn't in it for the power or the limelight uh, or to get his friends into positions where they could uh, uh, rake in the money for themselves. I mean, he set a powerfully positive example when precedent counted for a great deal as our first. Um, He gave one of the shortest, actually I think it was the shortest, State of the Union speeches. I give him credit for that because uh, the more long-winded ones uh, are usually not worth listening to. It was only 10 minutes long, his first one, and he gave a magnificent farewell address uh, in which he uh, laid out to the country the dangers that we should avoid. So he was certainly... uh, not only our first, but about the best we could have found at the time. At the perfect time, absolutely a, a great leader at the time, and who uh, shied away from uh, power, wanted the best for the country, and followed closely by Thomas Jefferson, in my view. That's right. In between Washington and Jefferson, we had one term of John Adams, who was uh, Washington's vice president. And, you know, in many ways, John Adams was a great patriot. Uh, I, I don't, I, I'm always a little reluctant to uh, uh, talk him down, but he did make uh, a pretty serious mistake when he supported the Alien and Sedition Acts, yeah. uh, which put the government um, in the position of, of uh, censoring the press. But it was Thomas Jefferson who followed him, who yanked the country back on course. 
uh, and made uh, the Democratic Party the party of small government. It certainly isn't that today, but it was under Jefferson, Jefferson and for 100 years thereafter. Uh, so I think Jefferson was probably a better patriot and author, namely of the Declaration, than he was a president, but still uh, a, a pretty good president overall. You cite some uh, in your column some interesting names, and I'm sure most people would be scratching their heads. Why? Why is he on the list? But one is Grover Cleveland. Yeah, Grover Cleveland, in some ways, is my favorite. Uh, that's not necessarily saying he was the best, but I think uh, he certainly was among the best. But he's my personal favorite uh, for a number of reasons. He vetoed more bills than all the previous 21 presidents combined. Hmm. Uh, he stood squarely for small government, limited spending, lower tariffs and taxes, uh, sound money. Uh, he once killed a bill that would have appropriated money for drought-stricken farmers in Texas. And in that uh, veto, he said, though the people may support the government, it is not the duty of the government to support the people. And you contrast that with the current president who's looking for every way in which he can make Americans dependent on the government and yeah. wants to spend trillions more than we have for that very purpose. So well said, Grover Cleveland. And also, you came to the defense of, I mean, you know, if you read a history book in high school, you're going to find it, you're going to think that Warren G. Harding was probably one of our worst presidents, but you say no. <laughs> That's right. Warren Harding was uh, a decent president. He gets a, a bad rap because of uh, the scandals uh, that occurred during his uh, two and a half years in office. Uh, but historians who've really looked into that uh, discovered that uh, uh, those scandals didn't reach the very top. They were uh, the uh, misdeeds of underlings who let Warren Harding down. And, I mean, that's not to say he uh, shouldn't bear some responsibility. He chose those people. Yeah. But uh, you take that part out and you find that, wow, otherwise he was a pretty darn good president. He uh, reduced taxes. He reduced the size of the national debt. Uh, he brought the country back to normalcy, which was one of his main campaign promises. And um, uh, he, he was really uh, a breath of fresh air after the Woodrow Wilson years. And of course, he had uh, the best Treasury Secretary America has ever had, uh, Andrew Mellon, hmm. and then uh, maybe one of the best vice presidents that uh, the America ever had, which was who was Calvin Coolidge, who succeeded Harding and was a darn good president himself. Yeah, silent Cal. So, what what are your thoughts on Calvin Coolidge? Uh, Calvin Coolidge, I just love. I, I, he uh, he didn't have an ego. Quite the contrary, in fact, he was a humble and quiet guy. Uh, he gets that uh, nickname, Silent Cal, because of his. Uh, 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 quietness at social occasions. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, he held more press conferences than any president in American history before or since. So he could talk. Huh. But uh, <laughs> when you caught him in a social occasion, he was very quiet, very taciturn. And uh, the, famously, when a woman approached him and, uh, and said, uh, Mr. President, I have a bet with a friend that I can get you to say three words. And his response was, you lose. <laughs> so, that's that's beautiful i hadn't heard that before yeah he was really uh, a, a great defender of traditional values of hard work and responsibility and he was a superb example of them both he continued the harding uh effort to reduce taxes and debt 
and um, he really worked to keep the federal government within proper bounds. And he could have run uh, for another term, but he he chose not to. So he wasn't a guy who just lusted for power, had to get it at, at any cost and keep it at any cost. He was really a genuinely uh, freedom-loving, um, hard-working American. Absolutely. Uh, let's let's uh, close with uh, one of my favorites, uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, certainly the best president in my lifetime, and. Uh, I'll close with a quote from him because, especially on Memorial Day, it's it's worth careful consideration. He reminded us in these words of something very important. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-fought lessons of how they, in their lifetime, must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in America when men were free. Oh, scary thoughts indeed, and so true. Again, Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. I hope you'll check out the very robust website, fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books. He wrote uh, Father the Leader, its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, and its sequel, No Problem. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, You'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples.
Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, providing pro- uh, policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He retired just a couple of years. He's written a couple of great murder mysteries. Follow the Leader, its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, and its sequel, No Problem, great reads. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Hey, it's, it's fun, Bob. Uh, hey, I had a visit this weekend from my sister, Christine, who lives uh, in Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania. It's, it's an immediate suburb of Philadelphia. She, uh, like you, she's a Donald Trump enthusiast. Uh, unlike me, she, <laughs> she thought uh, the election was stolen in Pennsylvania. Uh, as we've discussed before, uh, my view is that it's too complex to steal. But anyway, she she ran to become judge of elections in her community. And I never imagined the amount of work and detail that goes into, uh, you know, just uh, the effort to, to run uh, the primary, uh, let alone a general election. She, she had a fabulous tale. Uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about it because I think, uh, like I said, I think Trump um, manufactured an election steal. However, a positive result of all this is people have become a lot more careful. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's uh, shenanigans even at the uh, lowest, at the precinct level, are going to be much harder to uh, pull off. Uh, you know, hopefully the intensity continues uh, for decades. But, yeah. uh, but right now, uh, elections are probably more honest than they've ever been, uh, you know, because of Trump's... Uh, assertions oh let's let's hope so and that uh, uh, just about uh, certainly like to hear the story uh, just as a predicate though did was she from a conservative or a, a more liberal community you know that's uh i think it's probably slightly lean slightly trump it's it's suburban philadelphia it's it's uh you know upper middle class uh, professional people i I'm pretty sure it was uh, slightly Trump because she actually beat out a uh, a, a more moderate candidate to become uh, the judge of elections. So, uh, but she was telling me like the year, the previous election, uh, the, the polling place is a Lutheran church. So the previous election, the polls, which were supposed to open promptly at 7 a.m., uh, didn't open until 7:30 a.m. because the church janitor didn't bother to set his alarm and <laughs> he had the keys. So, so she wanted to make sure this was not going to happen no. uh, in the primary. So she, she formed a special bond with the uh, pastor of the Lutheran church and uh, who, who made sure that the church was, you know, that they could get in at six o'clock in the morning to set things up so that the polls would open promptly at, at seven. And, uh, it's really intense. Like the, the voting machines get delivered the day before. So she has to go in and she has to verify the serial numbers on the voting machines against uh, other documentation. She has to swear in poll workers and assign them duties. Um, you know, and they ha- she has to schedule lunch breaks for these people. 
she has to um, monitor the number of people who come in. Like you, you count the people who sign in, and you have to make sure that the voting machines are registering the same number of votes, which gets very complicated because some of the voters are so slow. Mm-hmm. You know that when it, you know they periodically they conduct a census and. And periodically it doesn't match up because, you know, maybe three voters are um, exceptionally slow. Um, And she said that she thinks that uh, uh, Democrats, could have been Republicans too, were testing them constantly, coming in with all kinds of problems that she thinks were manufactured. So, for example, she would get a a guy came in and he said, look – I used to live uh, in this community, and I moved to Philadelphia, but I want to vote here because I pay taxes here for my business. Yeah. So um, clearly he's supposed to vote in Philadelphia, and she tells him, but he's not satisfied. So she has to call a command post in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and she puts it on speakerphone so he can hear it. And the, the uh, judge and the, the the top judge in Norristown says, no, he's, he's got to vote at uh, such and such a place in Philadelphia. But she said periodically throughout the day, there would be people coming in throwing curveballs. And she yeah. thinks it was, you know, different groups trying to test um, the integrity of the voting system. Unbelievable. So, um, now, they only had uh, about 800 voters. There were 4,000 registered voters in her community. Um, only 800 showed up. Yeah, only 800 showed up. And, you know, they have to lock the machines. Uh, they have to verify all the numbers again. They have to take, uh, they have to take paper ballots, and they have to take uh, computer cards from the machines to, to another location, you know, sealed to make sure, uh, you know, every, it's almost like following the, the rules of evidence. But, but my sister, Christine, was one of 10,000 election judges in Pennsylvania. That's how many voting Holy moly. So you take 10, that multiple. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Jim, it's, I'll tell you, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, it seems to me there should be a template for that and kind of a checklist but uh, because it's, it's uh, replicable so many times. But irrespective, I mean, it's a big task. And congratulations to your sister for, ta- for paying ta- attention to the detail. Jim McTague, again, Barron's former Washington bureau chief and author, of Follow the Leader, Shake the Money Tree, and my favorite, No Problem. His latest book is No Problem. I hope you check them out. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Happy Memorial Day. You as well. Thank you, Jim. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator and soon-to-be uh, Senate president. Boo Mortensen will be joining us. Uh, We'll also visit with Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, and my wife Linda will be joining us. Always appreciate her commentary and insights of what's happening, not only locally, but also nationally. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Hope you'll uh, give some thoughts to those who uh, gave the last full measure of devotion for our freedom here in the United States of America. And I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.